Yeah, my name is Russ Eversole. I'm a pediatrician uh, by trade, although I kind of have to do more than that where we work in Togo, West Africa. It's like uh, old home week here. I'm, I had a t- couple people I was going to mention. There's about eight or nine that have been out there with us that are in the crowd here, so I don't know if they're checking up on me or what, but got some uh, really good friends. Uh, we've got one of my coworkers, Brenda. She's one of our nurse practitioners out there that's here. Jeff Robinson was a medical student out there. Fred Bonson, Dr. Bonson, has been out there a bunch of times and uh, has been just a wonderful friend. And I know I'm missing other people, but uh, Jim Paternoster. So it's been like old folks' home here for me. So. Um, I actually grew up in the Philippines as a missionary kid. It's probably my interest in medicine started there, my interest in especially in tropical medicine. Uh, but God had other plans. It was a long, drawn-out process to get where we were. And um, I ended up 14 years in the United States Navy, private practice for five years. And then uh, finally, we arrived in Togo in 2002. Right now we're on furlough, but in uh, December of last year, I had to return urgently in acute renal failure of unknown cause and ended up in the hospital for a couple weeks and got very close with a creatinine of nine to going on dialysis. But God was good. High dose steroids for three months, which I'd never want to do again. Uh, brought that down, and as of two weeks ago, my creatinine was normal. And if things work out by next summer, when our furlough's over, we hope to go back. So just that's where we're coming from. So thank you. Um, I, I was given this topic, and it's anything to do with kids. I love. I love tropical medicine, and if you're in sub-Saharan Africa, you better know malaria. I was told that the, uh, the PowerPoint slides that here would be available to you afterwards. So I went and made some of the slides a little bit more material, a little more busy, so that you'd have those as resources for those of you that were going over there, things like dosages and stuff. Now I don't know if that's true. They're checking for me. If it's not, I can do it one of two ways. If you're really interested in getting a copy of these slides, if you have a flash drive, we can do that real quick anytime while we're here. I've got a sign-up. If, you if your server can handle about a 25-megabyte attachment, if I have your name and address, I'll be glad to send them to you. So a little bit of a just explanation. So we're talking about malaria in children, and hopefully things will work. The problem, how many were in the, the case study one this morning? With uh, He kind of jumped the gun on, on malaria for me a little bit, but not too many, so that's good. The problem, it's the most important parasitic disease in my mind. 5% of the world, as we speak, is infected. It's up to 800 million new cases a year. Almost greater than 80% of them are in sub-Saharan Africa. And greater than 1 million deaths a year. This is the killer of close to a million children under 5. If you go there, uh, it seems like sometimes all you do is malaria. That's not quite true. Uh, This is a cartoon. I don't know if you can see that. It says, uh, is there a doctor in the crowd? And the guy says, I'm a doctor. He comes over, looks at the guy on the ground. He says, it's malaria. He says, malaria? He just got run over by the bus. Uh, malaria with complications. <laughs> and that's the story of Hopital Baptist Biblique in Togo. If they aren't there for malaria, they probably have it on the side. So it's an issue that we deal with all the time. So what's the challenge? Successfully diagnose and treat the greatest killer of children under five years of age. And uh, it is a challenge. We don't like to see what you see at the bottom there. Uh, I put this map in just to show you sort of the distribution of malaria. It follows kind of right along the equator, dipping down into Africa, uh, into parts of Southeast Asia, and then the Amazon basin, some of Central America. What are the culprits? Well, there's two parts of the deal. One is the, the parasite, which is plasmodium. There's five different species now. They used to teach you in med school four, but there's five because of uh, Plasmodium nolesi. Uh, And then, of course, the the mosquito that causes the problem. Now, I'm going to talk very briefly about the other species than falciparum, and then the rest of the talk is on falciparum. Not to downplay part of Vivax, if many of you are living in the Americas or in Asia, Vivax is an important one. I practiced for three years in the Navy in the Philippines and took care of a lot of tribal children with that. But the killer of kids is falciparum. So, um, very busy slide. I used to hate these in medical school. 
I'm only showing this for two reasons. Number one, up in the picture of the liver is one of the main ways you can separate the species out is two of them have what's called a delayed liver phase or what's called hypnozoites. And those are the ones that you can get the malaria three months a year later. That's vivax and ovale. The other thing is in the upper right hand you see the erythrocyte cycle. That's where all the problem comes. That's where the symptoms come from. The red cell gets infected. The sporozoites just multiply like crazy, break, and then they infect all the other cells. So, and that's how you separate. Those are the two areas where you separate the different species. If you look at vivax, it's mainly in the Americas, Asia, a little bit in Africa. To be honest with you, we don't really worry about speciation too much in Africa because what kills is falciparum. This, this, is, this is just sort of trivia. It's not real important, but I always find it fascinating. Why don't we see vivax in Africa? Well, it turns out that people, to get vivax, you have to have the Duffy red cell antigen on your red cells for vivax to be able to attack it. If you are homozygous recessive, meaning you don't have that Duffy antigen, that's 100% protective from vivax. And almost uniformly, African blacks are homozygous recessive. I wish the same were true for falciparum, but it's not the case. Um, the thing with Vivax, they just infect young cells. That's why you don't get quite as sick with it. Uh, it has that delayed liver stage that you have to worry about, so you got to get, you can get relapses. And it doesn't usually give you a high parasitemia. Parasitemia means number of parasites per thousand cells. So you get a milder illness. I wanted to go over three definitions because people get confused, myself included, when I came back from my first furlough. When you're talking about recurrent malaria infections, one is a relapse. That's what everyone thinks of. Oh, I had malaria. I came back three years later and I got it. That's the one that's caused by the liver, the liver stage, the hypnozoite. For falciparum, we have what's called recrudescence. Now, what that means is you get a recurrent infection, but it really is from the one you got already. It just got treated partially or otherwise to a level that you can no longer see it in the blood, but it never went away, only to come rear its ugly head later on. Uh, we came home from furlough with three sons and my wife, and within uh, three weeks, all three boys and my wife had malaria. And we found out that it's probably because we lost our prophylaxis in London on the way back. I didn't get it. Why? I took azithromycin for bronchitis, and that has anti-malarial. So that's what a recrudescence is. It doesn't mean you've got this relapse coming from your liver. And then the last thing is reinfection. That just meant everything got cured, and then another mosquito came along. So those terms are kind of important to know. Busy slide ignored other than the fact that for Vivax, it's chloroquine in most of the cases. But actually, this other one, and we'll go into deep more detail. Artemisia is in combination therapy, ACT. That's really becoming the, dro the drug of choice for even Vivax because Vivax is very sensitive to that. Mefloquin works well too. It's hard to come by. has a lot of side effects. You notice you can't use some of the others. And last thing, primaquin, that's the one that eliminates the liver stage. Now, if you live in an endemic area as a national living there, that's probably not important because you have low level of of uh, malaria, and it doesn't cause you much problems. But if you are an expatriate going to an area with Vivax, or you used to live there, went away, you need to take the primaquin. The problem with that is if you have what's called glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, primaquin can cause you problems, especially if you're Mediterranean or Asian, because the type of G6PD deficiency for Asians and Mediterraneans is severe. The good news for Africans is very mild, and you could probably give primaquin and just a lower dose. Don't worry about the doses. That's just if anyone's going somewhere and wants these later, you can get them. The second one, Plasmodium ovale. That's in the area that we work at. Uh, you notice I mentioned the tertian fever pattern. That's every two days or every three days. That is basically for medical school exams. In the real world, you don't see that, okay? <laughs> All right, so just... But this one also invades only reticulocytes. The parasitemia is really above 2%. And if you think about it, the blood, blood cells have a 120-day lifespan. So if all you're getting infected is the new little ones, a retic count in a normal person is probably just 5% or less. So you're only infecting 5% of your red cells. Therefore, you're not going to get as sick. Okay? 
But this one does cause relapse, and the treatment is the same as for uh, Vivax. Malaria uh, is in the same pattern of, uh, it's, it's present in the same areas as uh, Ovali. This is the one with the Quartin fever pattern every three days. And it invades old cells, doesn't have a liver stage. The main thing is occasionally you can see intractable nephrotic syndrome from malaria. Now, if I saw a kid coming like that into our, our hospital, I'd think other things than malaria, malaria. I'd be thinking schistosomiasis. I'd be look, looking at uh, other liver factors. But anyway, you have to keep that in mind, and it's sensitive to the usual actors. This is a newer one. It used to be just in monkeys, they thought. Now they're finding it in Southeast Asia. The gentleman this morning mentioned it's in Borneo. It's also in these other countries that you see there. It looks like malaria under the smear, but it act, can act like falciparum. It's usually mild, but it can kill. That's the, the take-home question. And, uh, and Again, it's sensitive to those drugs there. But this is the one we want to spend the bulk of the time on, falciparum. Tertian fever patterns. There's no rhyme or reason of the fever pattern, believe me. It's responsible for all the deaths. And why? Almost all the deaths. There's two reasons. One is it invades, it likes the young red cells the best, but it's not picky. It can infect all ages of cells. So all of a sudden, 100% of your red blood cell population is at risk. Second thing, it's the only species that can cause what we call sequestration. It has a sort of like a sticky factor of stickiness that allows it to, as it goes into the small little capillaries, it can get stuck. And then it causes obstruction and blocks whatever that organ is. And that's why you get problems with your brain and your kidneys and your, your, your lungs. So because of those two reasons, that's why falciparum is the killer. Now, epidemiology, boring, right? I want to just mention a couple things about it that I think are fascinating, but of course that's what I do for a living. But when you look at endemicity, which means that it's there all the time, and then how what the transmission rate is, if you have very intense transmission and a long transmission season, what you get is very severe illness, a lot of deaths, and it's mainly in infants and young children. And the interesting thing is the thing that usually kills them is severe anemia. Okay? Less intense, shorter transmission. You still get severe illness and death, but it's in older kids. And what usually kills them is cerebral malaria. And then once you get to older children and adults, there's less and more mortality. Now, so in essence, the, the worse the situation is, the more it will kill you when you're younger, but the less it will kill you later. Does that make sense to you? Okay. What do we call this? It's called premonition, and it's not a persistent protection. You know, you get chickenpox and you never get it again. It's 100%. This is an immune-mediated protection against the parasite and disease, but not contracting it. So it controls the infection, but doesn't keep you from getting it. So if you have premonition, if you've lived all your life in Togo, and we have a saying is if you got to age five without being killed by malaria, you've won the lottery. You will get, you'll get, you know, uh, there's always exceptions to the rules and there's always a fuzzy border between this. But in general, if you get to five and you survived, you're probably not going to die of malaria. Okay. So what happens if you have this premonition? It comes because of repeated infection in endemic areas. And as a result, the more you get it, each time it's less and less severe. Now, if you are from Togo, but you go to the States to go to college for four years and go back, guess what? You're back to square one and you're like an expatriate. You're not protected. So what we see in the area we're at, in any area where you have a high, high endemicity, under six months of age, the infection is rare. And what's that cause? What do you think? Why? Yeah, maternal antibodies. But if you get a kid with it, they can be very, very sick. Then from six months to three years in general, you get severe illness with anemia. Three to around seven, severe illness with cerebral malaria. And then everybody above that does pretty well. Not 100%, but it's a good rule of thumb. So what does it look like? Malaria is the great mimic. I've had it six times. I'm not real good at taking my prophylaxis. Um, uh, twice I had the classic fever chills. You don't see that too often. 
twice it was respiratory, all respiratory. I thought I had pneumonia. And twice I just had GI. I was throwing up and vomiting and dying. So malaria can do anything. It's sort of like the syphilis in the old days. They said syphilis could mask any symptom. So it's a great mimicker, and that's why you've got to be careful with it. And we use the concept of clinical syndromes in terms of presentation. And I want to go over a few of these, the ones that are the most dangerous. Cerebral malaria, high risk of dying. Uh, the man this morning said that the mortality was greater with um, metabolic acidosis and respiratory distress. The percent of those kids that die is higher. But the, in terms of the absolute numbers of deaths, it's cerebral malaria that kills the most kids. Um, Again, six to three months of age. If you go by a strict definition, and we don't, and I'll explain in a minute, it's unarousable coma in the presence of peripheral parasitemia when other causes are excluded. Well, that's kind of hard to do when you're in a mission hospital. So we, we try to follow that. You can't. Um, not to get into all the details, but they used to think it was because of swelling of your brain. They don't think it's that anymore. They think it's because the blood flow to the brain increases and that's what, and then you get the uh, cerebral increased cerebral blood volume has nothing to do with permeability. What do you see on on the clinical findings? It can be very gradual, and then suddenly go bad, or they can present with a seizure, and that's it. Uh, it's usually diffuse. In other words, you don't see a focal seizure. You'll see generalized activity or lack of activity. If you memorize the the coma scales. Glasgow, minus 11. It's usually lower than that, by the way. Blantyre is the one they use for kids. But often present with seizures, and it can be just about anything. It can be subtle. It can be a kid that's lying there looking dead, and you, you open up their eyelids, and you'll see their eyes going back and forth. And it, that can be the only seizure they have. Uh, you also see a lot of posturing and, 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 and opisthotonic posturing, things like that. It can also be from malaria. Funny-wise, you don't get any nuclear rigidity in general, but it can be hard to separate the two. What's the outcome? 20% mortality, even with treatment. And 10% of survivors have neurologic sequelae, which is, I think they could come up with a more exciting name than post-malaria neurologic syndrome. But as you see, it can be pretty devastating. We have been blessed. I have seen very little of that in the survivors in, in Togo, and I don't, no why other than just God's keeping an eye out on us, I think. Uh, any of these kids shouldn't be given meth. We'll go over that later. So that's the, the most severe one. Another severe form or clinical syndrome is that of severe anemia, another one with high risk of dying. We often see hematocrits. That's not hemoglobin. It's hematocrits less than 10. The record I have is 4. So that's about a hemoglobin of about 1.3, Okay. And that kid lived. He actually walked in. He had severe iron deficiency anemia on top of malaria. And uh, when we gave him some iron and some blood, you could hear his marrow humming, I think. But uh, it's using uh, normochromic, normocytic, unless there's iron deficiency. What causes it? The interesting thing is you think, okay, that makes sense. The red cells are being chewed up by the, the bacteria. What they found is all the red cells, whether they're infected or not, become stiffer, and they get broken down easily. And so the major cause of the anemia isn't the cells that are infected, but there's acceleration and destruction of all the cells, infected and non-infected ones. And then on top of that, their bone marrow is not working well, and that can last for several weeks. How do they present? It's pretty scary. These come in pale as ghosts, gasping for breath. Uh, in some of them, you have cerebral malaria as well. You listen to their heart, you hear a big, huge gallop and a murmur. And uh, I tell people, probably 90% of the children we admit would go to ICU here in the States. And I would estimate about 50% are within minutes to hours of dying. So when you first get there, it's pretty scary, especially if you haven't had a lot of training, because you just have no idea what to do. But once you get the hang of it, and there's some basic things you can do, and with the help of the Lord, because we're dealing with a, a you know, a an area that doesn't have a lot of technology, uh, things can go well. This is the one that uh, this is a this is another one that's very bad, called non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. It's interesting because what they find is that your pulmonary vascular bed becomes very permeable, so fluid leak out. But none of the rest of your body is affected by it. It just hits your lungs alone, 
It's more common in adults, thank goodness. For Well, I don't want to wish it on the adults, but I don't see it as often in kids. It's very difficult to predict at the time of admission. It's very frustrating because these kids can be ones that are getting better, and all of a sudden they just nosedive, and you cannot bring them out of the tailspin, and they just die. And I have spent eight years trying to figure out how can I predict which child coming in. Is there something about the ones that died? And I have yet to come up with an with a, uh, indication for that. It's very hard to treat. High mortality, and it may be related to excess fluids. We'll talk about that more. This is the one that uh, the doctor this morning mentioned, metabolic acidosis with respiratory distress. If you saw a child coming in gasping for breath, what's your immediate thought here in the States? Something respiratory. Asthma, uh, bronchiolitis. These kids present in florid respiratory distress, but the problem has nothing to do with their lungs. It's all due to hypovolemia, low volume, and acidosis. Uh, there's some of it's lactic acidosis. They're not sure what the main one is. They need IV rehydration. They need urgent blood transfusion because these kids are often very pale. So you don't want to restrict fluid, but you better monitor closely because you can overhydrate them, and then they're just going to circle to the drain. Very rare in kids, thank goodness, because look at that mortality, 45%. Renal failure. Uh, mine was not due to malaria because I did not have glomerular nephritis. That's what you get. I had an interstitial nephritis, so it wasn't due to the malaria. But uh, it's usually one that uh, is temporary. They present with the usual way for renal failure with low urine output, elevated BUN creatinine. Fortunately, it is not that common. This is common, hypoglycemia. Um, the, the books say 20 to 30%. It seems higher than me. Uh, and there's a lot of causes for it. The first three have to do with increased demand. The body needs more because uh, peripherally, plus the kids are febrile, so they need more. Plus, it turns out that the parasites like glucose too, so they use up a lot. And then at the same time, your liver is not working the way it should be. So they can get very, very hypoglycemic. And then quinine aggravates the situation. So we get these kids coming in from the dispensaries, they come in, you, you take, a, you take a, a glucose test, and it can be 10 or 0. And nothing else will work until you fix that. So you've got to be very aware of that. Two others quickly, something called prostration. All that means is they're very, very weak. And occasionally you'll see a kid like that. They can't sit up on their own. They're not seizing. They're not terribly pale. But they can't walk, or if they're too young to walk, they can't, they're so weak they can't even hold themselves up. And another very rare one, I've only seen it once or twice, is what they call algid malaria, which is a total collapse, vascular collapse and shock. As you see, it's sometimes associated with problems with your adrenal gland. So what do you do? First of all, what am I trying to display there with this little kid? The spleen. Now, you can go your whole career in the States and never feel a spleen. Uh, You'll see spleens. Uh, you'll have no trouble feeling these spleens. The other thing is you see all the, the scars over the spleen on this little one? The fetishers, now that doesn't have the same connotation here, but the fetishers, which are the, the, the local healers, witch doctors, what do you call them, they believe that the way to heal a lot of things is you have to make cuts in the skin to let the evil spirits out. So you'll see these little babies come in just covered with cuts. So work up with a child with possible malaria. I put history here, but you know, in, in retrospect and in, in reality, the number of times I've sat and taken a history before I started working on a kid is very, very, very small percentage. Because, first of all, taking history in a third world country, especially when there's like 40 languages and you're going through two or three interpreters, can be very frustrating. You don't have time with these children. But what you eventually want to get are these things. How long has the kid been sick? And for a little baby, it may be less than 24 hours, and they're already on death's doorstep. But you want to know how long they've had a fever, how long they've been pale, the respiratory GI symptoms we mentioned. It's important to know whether they can tolerate PO or not. That helps decide if they need to come in. Uh, mental status, well, that's not like, can you tell me seven, seven numbers in a row? That we're talking about is this child comatose, obtunded, lethargic, irritable, that kind of thing. Obviously, whether they've had seizures or are having a seizure, 
important to know what was given before, especially quinine. If quinine is given, watch out for hypoglycemia. The other thing is any prior meds may affect your smears and your diagnosis. Um, ask the use of mosquito nets. Uh, we try to push that to hospital, and I know that we'll talk about that a little bit later. My experience there is a lot of people have them and not many use them because it's so hot. And you say, well, I can't use it. I get under there. It's just so hot. Well, we try to do that, but you want to know about that. The last thing there about gross hematuria, it seems from my, my experience there, a kid could come in seizing and look pale, and the parents are most concerned because the urine's dark because that's something they can kind of see right there. And you see a lot of times... Uh, blood in the stool, blood in the urine because of the hemolysis from the breakdown of the cells. Physical examination. Again, you're usually doing this on the fly as you're starting to intervene and treat the child. Your goal for that is, is this child need admission? Does this child need parental therapy? Uh, degree of fever is helpful. It doesn't change a whole lot of things. Second part, third one down there, hydration status is critical because many of these kids come in very, very dry. And uh, if they're not tolerating PO, they need to come in. The degree of pallor, you're told here, never, never rely on looking at the, eye, the conjunctiva in the States. But it's very useful out there, and you'll have kids that it's just white as, white as snow. The other thing in Africans, you can use the palmer creases. Usually there's going to be a, a little bit of an increased pigmentation in the crease. And if you have a child that's really anemic, it'll just look white there. So... Those are a quick way of doing it before you get your labs back. Uh, listen to their heart because you're looking for murmur. You're looking for a gallop, which would indicate the child's having some compromise of their hemodynamic system, hemodynamics. Uh, respiratory, we've gone over a mental status exam. You're looking for evidence of seizures, a post-ictal state. Are they out of it for that reason? Are they decerebrate? You see a lot of that posturing there. Um, and then, of course, whether they have a spleen or not. Now, lab workup. I forgot to mention that here, too, is also Bob and Barb Adolf. Bob is, was, for many, many years, our lab person in Bangladesh, and he's been out to Togo four times to whip our lab into shape and just started bacteriology for the first time. So glad that he's here. But the guys you see here, he's trained many of them. Uh, lab workup, we look at several things. The malaria smear is what everyone thinks about. Real quickly, thin versus thick was mentioned this morning. Basically, your thick smear, you determine whether they're present or not. You can sometimes get an idea of the concentration, but that's not what it's for. Thin smear is more like a regular blood smear, and you can do the speciation. Again, we don't do that most times, if ever, because it's almost always falciparum, and the treatment's not going to change. And then you can also get a quantification of the parasitemia. When I first got to our hospital, it was always qualitative, occasional, few, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus. Uh, now we also do quantitative where they give you an actual estimate of parasites per um, microliter. Now, with the smears, you have to be careful because there are some pitfalls with it. First thing is they can be negative in the presence of an infection. What if you've had prior treatment? Um, they say that a negative smear isn't negative until it's negative for three days in a row. So you have to be careful with that. The flip side, they can be positive but not indicate that the parasites are the cause of the illness. We talked about premonition. We talked about in an endemic area. Most of the people, they, they figure about 95% of kids and 50% of adults can have a low level of parasitemia in a very highly endemic area. And it doesn't necessarily mean that's what's causing your problem. That can also be a problem if you say, oh, it's malaria, and you overlook another more serious illness like a meningitis just because you're going by your positive smear, which is leading down the, the wrong way. The other thing is with severe presentations like cerebral malaria, you can have a very low level of parasitemia. It may be even absent. Now, if you had a way of getting a smear of the brain, you'd see parasites all over the place. But, and then lastly, interestingly, in, in falciparum, Usually only the young forms are seen on the peripheral smear. So what you're seeing there is only about one-third of the total body burden. Uh, so those are some of the things you have to be careful with a smear. Yes? Do you lift fever What do you mean? You take the smear and you have fever. Yeah, I, we don't, I don't. 
I should be careful because we, we try, we don't want to be doing smears just routinely. We're doing these on symptomatic kids is what I'm talking about, yeah. Because if you did it on a kid with no fever and they're in the area where we really live, you're going to probably come back with a positive test. Um, this top part there about findings that indicate a poor prognosis, you have to have some pretty sharp lab people to do that um, and, and also people that have the time to do it. But in general, a high, higher level of parasitemia, that makes sense. Uh, increased percentage of mature parasites for falciparum, usually it's the, the, the younger ones that you see. So if you're seeing more mature ones, it means there's even a whole lot more than that hidden. And uh, I've never used that third one. Gametocytes, so that just means you've got infection going, but the gametocytes have nothing to do with the symptoms. And the interesting thing is you can treat malaria and that doesn't kill them. The drugs don't kill those. The key point from all of this with the smears is never withhold anti-malaria treatment in a child that has symptoms consistent with malaria regardless of what the, what the smear shows because these kids get sick and they can deteriorate in, in, in a very quick time. Um, RDTs. I'm not sure what to tell you on this because it keeps changing where we're at. It was a big deal with the government in Togo for a while. You couldn't get any medicines unless you had an RDT. So they gave us all the RDTs, which of course ran out after the first stock, and then we had none of them left. And I don't know, Bob, what's the latest thing? Do we still have them there? Uh, it's, it really depends on where you're at and what the government gives you. There's so many different kinds. It's a qualitative plus-minus. You can't get an evidence of uh, how bad of a parasitemia. Um, so you can use it if you have someone not severe, but you want to document a positive test before starting outpatient therapy. Uh, the trouble is it can be positive in a patient without acute illness, as you, we talked about before. In general, my guidelines, and I don't have a place, uh, chapter, verse to prove this, but I don't use it for children under five. I don't use it for severely ill children and I don't use it for pregnant patients because those are the categories of people that get really, really sick. And for me, the difference between a 1-plus and a 3-plus in a child may make the difference of deciding whether they come in the hospital or not because if they have a high-level parasitemia, you better have a very good reason not to treat them or not to admit them and very good follow-up, and follow-up can be a real problem in, in a third-world country. Complete blood counts, elite at least a hematocrit or a hemoglobin to know where you're starting before transfusions. White counts can be up because of meningitis. Uh, I don't know, people that have been other places, I've seen incredibly high white counts with just malaria. They'll come in with a white count of 100,000, and right away you think, oh, my word, they have leukemia or something. And the next day you repeat it, and it's back to normal. It may just be a demarginating effect from stress. I don't know, but the white count can be very high. And usually there's some degree of lower decreased platelets. You need to have a blood glucose right away. As long as the child remains unconscious, you need to check that intermittently. A little bit about sickle cell tests. When I was practicing in the States in the Navy, I had a lot of sicklers. And I always remember to, t to do that. When I got to Togo, for some reason, it just never crossed my mind about sickle cell. I mean, go figure. And, boy, I learned the hard way. We started doing that on children if they didn't have big spleens with malaria, especially if they've been sick for a while. I started doing it on every child because, for me, it's helpful to know the sickle status. If they have sickle, they tend to have a more severe illness. It can be more prolonged illness. Um, and also, uh, I put those kids on prophylaxis for malaria with uh, Fancidar uh, once they go home from the hospital. So... If you have a new kid, I, generally I get a sickle cell. Lumbar punctures. This is one of the little bit of a controversy. Well, it's not controversy in literature. Every child with cerebral malaria, suspected cerebral malaria, should have an LP on the admission because you cannot separate them from meningitis. Now, if you're in a, a resource-poor area, I only have so many one-and-a-half-inch spinal needles that I have, and I only have, I don't have any spinal kits. And so if I was doing a spinal on every kid, which could be six or eight kids a day, I'd be out of stuff really quick. The second thing is a lot of these kids are just so sick that for putting them in a compromising position when they're already in respiratory distress, at least for me, I prefer to delay it. Now, I, there's people in here that are experts, and I'm, I don't know what Phil thinks about this, but... Uh, my, my experience is that 
you just start treating for both. And typically, if it's malaria, and they're treated with an anti-malarial, within a day or two, they're doing better if they're going to survive. You usually don't see that quick in a, a result with, uh, with meningitis. If I have a child with prolonged, that for a couple of days isn't getting better, then I do the tap. Now, that will cost you your culture, which we never had until about two months ago, so it wasn't an issue, but you still are going to get benefit from the cell count and the, and the, the gram stain. Um, usually, if it's cerebral malaria, you'll have an elevated open pressure a little bit, but it's basically going to be normal. All right, outpatient therapy. I've got a hustle here. It's really rare because the kids that come in don't come in when they're, when they're doing fine or just a little bit sick. So for me to do put a child on outpatient therapy, you have to have some pretty strict criteria. No evidence of cerebral malaria, a mild anemia. They're able to take fluids, which is a key. Reliable caretakers can be a very difficult one. Not, I'm, I don't mean that in that they're lazy or don't do that. It's just their understanding of what's going on and a follow-up at range. We have what's called the cuisine at our hospital. The cuisine doesn't mean where you eat. It's where the families live. They cook under there too. So if I ever start a child on outpatient therapy, especially a little one, I will say I want to see you first thing tomorrow morning. I want you to stay in the cuisine. If you get sick, kid gets sick tonight, you come back tonight because you, you, you've got to have follow-up. Um, I'm not going to worry about all the other stuff there. You can get that. Here's a, 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 sort of a simplistic slide just showing the area of sensitivity. And you see that where falciparum is, it's almost all resistant to, to chloroquine now. Unfortunately, there's areas of the world that are becoming multi-resistant to everything. This is the first-line treatment for malaria now. It's called ACT, Artemisia's and, uh, for, uh, Combination Therapy. Produces a very rapid clearance. It's the fastest clearing drug we know of. But the key is it should never be used by itself. It was when they first started using it. And what they're seeing now is resistance. And so the idea is you want to have two drugs so that the artesanate works very quickly, kills most of them, and then you want to have a second drug that's going to take care of the, the guys lagging behind to prevent, uh, prevent uh, resistance. If it's used in combination, it's three days. Some people say if it's a very high parasitemia but the child's still stable, you might want to go longer to prevent recrudescence. And you can get them in combined forms or you can take two individual drugs and give together. Very busy slide just to show you examples. Coartem, the top one. That's a good drug. That's the one that just knocked malaria out for me every time. And that's now pop, uh, can be found most places. Wherever you go, there's going to be other possible combinations. The next two are the ones that we had for a while. They come and go. A lot of times it's at the whim of the government that's, that's providing these things. Or you can put artesanate plus Fancidar together or mefloquin. The trouble is we have no mefloquin now. We can't get it. It's expensive. And, uh, and so that's a problem. You can also use doxy or tetracycline, but obviously they can't be kids. Another possibility, if you are very wealthy, is malarone. It's a very good drug, but it's very expensive, and it's not routinely available. And you still use quinine. It's no longer first line because you have to give it for seven days. You've got to give it three times a day. It tastes very bitter and it has increased side effects, but it is an option if nothing else. Uh, you don't have access to the others. There's also what we call pre-referral therapy, which I think is a critical thing, and I wish they start pushing that more in our country. Um, that is when a child shows up at a little dispensary, who knows where, they determine they have severe malaria like cerebral malaria. They often just get them on the road to go. Well, that could be a six or eight hour drive in a taxi that's breaking down. So if you use our testinate suppositories, they've shown that that will decrease the mortality. The trouble is our country has gotten rid of all our testinate suppositories because they don't want you to use monotherapy. The other option is IM Artemether, which you're going to have most places. Uh, the problem with Artemether is if you have a child that's in vascular compromise, it doesn't get absorbed well. So it's, it's better than nothing, but it's not the best. Uh, but they've found that you know, if you give treatment in outpatient dispensary before referral, you can decrease mortality by 25%. Now, there are things to avoid, too, especially with injectables. 
those are two of my patients after some misadventures with IM injections with, uh, in the case on the left, quinine. And I forget what the other one is. The little baby on the right had some of the finest skin grafts done and healed. The, one, the kid on the left developed a huge abscess and died from the treatment at the, at the dispensaries. Inpatient. These kids are sick. Here's your indications for admission. Most of them make sense if you've listened to what we're talking about. If you have cerebral malaria, you need to be admitted. If you can't tolerate PO or you're dry, you need to be admitted. If you have severe anemia and it's affecting your, your cardiovascular system, you've got to be admitted. The last one down there is not an absolute. In general, if I have a kid with a high parasitemia, I have to have a very good reason why I'm not going to admit them. But you can in, in occasional circumstances. So what do you do for inpatient? Well, you need to assess them at admission, and then the key is close monitoring. You have malaria treatment, adjunctive treatments, and supportive care. Usually these kids are NPO because they've been, well, they're unconscious, they're seizing. Uh, if they're comatose or obtundent, we put an NG tube down to try to uh, keep them from aspirating. IV access is always a challenge. Brenda is my backup if I can't get it, but a lot of my hours spent in, in Africa are putting IVs in kids. Uh, so we do IOs, intraosseous. My, my, I, I did three in one morning. That's my record with an intraosseous. But, but the other times you go for months without doing it. But you need to get IV access. Now, anti-malarial treatment, there are four recommended parental ones, artesanate, artemether, quinine. Now, quinidine, that's what they often use here in the States. I remember one of our missionary kids got a recrudescence, and a mother called me and said, my kid's in the intensive care with malaria. I said, Why? Well, they had to put her on quinidine, and they have to have cardiac monitoring for that. So we don't use that too often. The key here is IV artesanate is now the drug of choice. But at least for us, good luck trying to find it. We right now don't have access to that. But it is the quickest and best of the drugs. Um, yeah, you see it decreased mortality by 35%. You can use quinine. You can give it by bolus or by continuous infusion. You have increased toxicity. An interesting thing is the longer you use it, the riskier it gets. You don't usually have much toxicity in the first 24 hours, but once you get out 48 hours, if they're not clinically better, you need to think about decreasing <coughs> the dosage because there's increased toxicity. At our hospital, we use an infusion. Most hospitals don't. They use bolus. Uh, and we have this chart that you use, and we give a bolus loading dose by giving twice the infusion rate for four hours and then back to the, the regular rate. The key thing is you have to have good nursing and you have to have safe infusions. We use buretrols and things like that. And we've had good results for over 20 years. But a lot of settings, you're not going to be able to do that. Adjunctive treatment, rehydration. There, most of them have hypovolemia. This is another controversial area because these kids come in looking like they need to be rehydrated. But there's been studies, this one that you see there from just this year, that uh, there's increased mortality due to boluses in severely ill children. Not just malaria kids, but any kid that came in severely ill. Uh, and the results said it didn't support routine use of boluses. I don't have time to go into some of the details, but they were using volumes higher than we normally use. The key is if you need to start with something small like 10 cc's per kilo, and then if you need more, you can repeat it. But the key is critical monitoring. These kids need to be on pulse oximeters if you have them. You need to be monitoring urine output. What we've found since we don't have CVP is if I'm really concerned about that, I bring in the ultrasound, I'd look at the heart. And if I see a heart that's small and pumping like crazy, I know the kid's not overloaded. If I see a heart that's big and really sluggish, I know the kid's going into... Uh, fluid overload. That's not the quickest way of doing it, but if you don't have the others, it does help. Uh, blood transfusions, a lot of them are going to need it. You have to be sure that their your blood is tested. Uh, we test for HIV, Hep B, Hep C. We were told that all the hospitals in Togo do that. I've had at least six kids from one of the hospitals, one of the major government hospitals have showed up with HIV that the only way they got it was from blood transfusion. I remember one, the father said, how can that be? I was the one that gave him the blood. And we did the test on the dad and found out that not only does his child have it, but now he knows that he's the one that gave it to him. So be sure you have, the, have it tested. Now, 
Packed cells are, are preferred. We don't have a means of doing that unless you want to let it sit for an hour. And usually you don't have that time. They will eventually settle down, okay? So what we've done is we give whole blood and we give something like a, a small dose of furosemide uh, Lasix at the beginning to try to avoid. Uh, that's, I know that's verboten in some areas that we've been able to use that for years and it seems to work well. Kids may require repeated transfusions. The key is monitoring. Again, monitoring, monitoring, monitoring. Hypoglycemia, we've mentioned that before. If you have low sugar, you've got to get that up. You've got to continue to monitor, especially if they're, if they're uh, comatose. And we use uh, infusion of D7.5, not D5. For any child or adult that's on quinine infusion, we up the glucose a little bit because just to anticipate the possibility of hypoglycemia. Antibiotics. All severely ill kids with malaria must be covered for the possibility of meningitis and or sepsis. And uh, we usually use ceftriaxone, especially if you're thinking uh, meningitis, or if they have a very low white count, we've also used chloramphenicol. One interesting thing in, in my looking, at, looking and preparing is there's been an association between salmonella bacteremia and falciparum malaria. So if you have persistent fever after all your, all your parasites have disappeared from the blood, you might want to think about salmonella. Seizures, what do you do? You have to treat them. Uh, it says often there's just a single seizure. That may be the only one you see once you start anti-malarial treatment. So I prefer not to treat the PRN. I don't give every kid that comes in a PRN dose of phenobarbital. I don't even set up a schedule. I treat the seizure as it occurs. If it recurs, I treat again. Uh, I find that that's safer. We don't want to use diazepam a long time. Phenobarb has been the first line that there's been safety concerns about it, although the, from what I read, it has to do with using it as a prophylaxis. We start with a little smaller dose, and then you can repeat as needed. And I've, never ha I've only had once had to go to phenytoin on a kid in, in eight years, but you need to treat the seizures too. Um, what are some of the complications? We talked about post-malarial neurologic syndrome and kids that survive. Some kids will get acute tubular necrosis. That usually goes away. There's an entity that used to be known as tropical splenomegaly, but it's now known as hyperreactive malarial syndrome. It's with these huge, huge spleens that stay there. And they think it's from chronic antigenic stimulation of the virus, I mean the virus of the parasite. It causes the spleens to get huge. And I put Burkitt's lymphoma. I don't know if you'd call that a complication, but the, the belt of Burkitt's, is the belt of falciparum malaria. And the, the feeling is that, that the, the malaria has something to do with the development of Burkitt's lymphoma. It may be that there's an immunosuppressive effect which allows the Epstein-Barr virus to cause it. But you don't see African, you see African Burkitt's in the area where you see falciparum. How do you prevent it? That was actually a little baby born premature who was abandoned at our hospital. We kept her for 10 months. Um, became, I became her her temporary daddy, and I even got to name her. So she's, my daughter has a namesake out there, and she was adopted by one of our staff that we couldn't have kids. Um, real quick, because we're almost out of time, nets have been shown to save lives if they're used. Uh, you can use insect repellent, but it's got to be a higher concentration and only lasts for a few hours. Obviously, trying to avoid getting bitten, that may not be possible. As far as prophylaxis, it's not routinely recommended for individuals living in epidemic areas. I have staff members at our hospital coming up. Why did the missionaries get prophylaxis and you don't give us prophylaxis? I try to explain the concept that you already have better protection on board than we do, and all we'll do by giving you regular medicine for that is take away your built-in protection. There are some exceptions. Kids with sickle cell disease and also with a hyperactive malarial syndrome, they should be on regular anti-malarials. Yeah, the options are pretty limited. We use Fancidar. Last thing, and we don't have time to go into it, but in general, there's three things. Intermittent preventive t treatment in pregnancy, in infants, and in children. These, pregnancy is already being used routinely. We do it with Fancidar at the second and third trimester. Some studies have shown it might be better to give it monthly, especially in HIV patients. With the infants, uh, they've given it at... At those months, depends which study you look at, but they try to do it along with, with some of their immunizations, and it's really helped. 
it's being done in a couple countries. It's not routinely implemented. We have not started that yet. That's one of my goals to, to determine about that when I get back. I'd like to. And then for children with greater than one years of age, there's some studies that have shown that using uh, Fancidarn amodiaquin has decreased it. But this is still in the not even formally recommended by WHO yet. Vaccines, real quickly, just about two weeks ago, there was an article, this RTSS ASO1 vaccine. They found in a large study with children 5 to 17 months, 55% efficacy. Now, you can say, boy, that's pretty lousy. You know, the others that we have are like 100% or 90. But if you have a million kids dying a year, and if you can knock that down by 55%, that's like 500,000 families that take a live kid home instead of a dead one. So, you know, we're making making uh, progress there. Uh, I'm going to skip this part because it's, I was going to say pregnant women have something to do with kids, so that I was going to allow that to be in the talk. But uh, uh, it, it is not good for moms. It's not good for babies. Um, you know, a lot of what I've been talking about has been kind of depressing. A lot of kids dying, hard treatment, difficulty to do it. Uh, there's a flip side to that. This is just a, a random group of kids that I took pictures of either before they went home or after I saw them follow up that survived cerebral malaria or severe malaria. And this, I, I, I've lost 70 kids in a year a couple times, not all from malaria. I've had nights where I've lost five kids in one night, again, not all from malaria. But then I have to look at the fact that many of them have gotten better despite lack of supplies, lack of technology, lack of understanding what I'm doing at times. And that just tells you that God is there and God is helping us. The other thing, when I look at these kids with the ones that got better and went home, the other thing that these stand for is this. Every one of those kids' parents heard the gospel. The kid may not be old enough to understand but as you see with our chaplain in the bottom, he starts talking to one mother. Soon he has all the mothers around him. Uh, last year we had 2,700 decisions at our hospital. I don't know if they're all real or not. But the reason we're there is not just to help the suffering of these kids and cut down on the problems with malaria. We're really there to give them far more than that. And so that's why we're there. I'm over time. I'm sorry. If there's any questions, and again, if any of you are going to places and you want a copy of this, I'll be glad to email it to you, or I'll be glad to put your little flash drive in here.